This is Mike Munger, the knower of important things. I'm a professor at Duke University in the Department of Political Science and the Department of Economics. Do higher transactions costs make it easier or harder to find a committed romantic partner? What about Ashley Madison? Also, Twedge? And this week's letter. It turns out that a big part of the answer to all these questions is transaction costs. This is Tidy C. I thought they'd talk about a system where there were no transaction costs, but it's an imaginary system. There always are transaction costs. When it is costly to transact, institutions matter. And it is costly to transact. Last week's letter from MZ. MZ asked, It seems harder to find a long-term romantic partner in big cities than it is for people living in smaller towns. This at first seems paradoxical, given the enormous dating pool of the city. But the problem is that transaction cost is too low, because switching from one partner to another who might appear to be superior on the surface is so much easier, which leads to many people constantly switching and therefore never developing deep romantic relationships. So the question for you is whether you can think of examples of the same kind of dynamic in more traditional markets. Are there scenarios where transaction costs actually lead to better outcomes because they create some stickiness like brand loyalty? For example, do they allow some brands to take risks that they couldn't otherwise because they know that their customers are going to stick around? Well, thanks, MZ. That's a great question. Uh, I think there's a lot of examples, and I'd be interested uh, in comments or emails if people can think of ones that I've left out. Uh, in some ways, though, the most obvious ones are in politics. The Australian ballot or the anonymous ballot is actually a way of raising transactions cost. So it used to be that you would go to the voting place and there would be different tables for different parties, and you would get a different ballot. A piece of paper and it was different colors so people could tell how you were going to vote. Notice the advantage of that is that if somebody was paying for your vote, they could tell if you were actually complying with the agreement. But the Australian ballot is all the same color. And in fact, you go in and when you mark, you do it in a little booth where no one can see how you're marking. So suppose I want to buy your vote. I come to you and I say, look, I'll pay you $100 if you vote this way. And you say, sure. And then you go into this little private area. I can't tell how you voted. You come back out and I say, did you vote for my guy? Oh, well, yes. Okay, here's your $100. Notice that increasing the transaction cost of, in this case, trust. Remember, transactions cost are triangulation, transfer, and trust. Increasing the costs of trust has actually made the system work better because it makes it harder to engage in corrupt bargains. Another example is in intellectual property. Transaction costs makes intellectual property owners less likely to assert their property rights. Now, there's a problem called the anti-commons. Many of you who have studied economics probably know what the commons is. So the tragedy of the commons is when no one owns a thing, and it means that you get overuse, overfishing, overpollution. Uh, when something's a common pool resource, you get overfishing. But there's also an anti-commons, where you have to get the consent of everyone who owns a part of the thing that you want to use. And intellectual property can be like that. If you have many, many different small patents, all of which arguably are relevant to the activity you want to engage in, maybe you want to write a new piece of software. Well, if it is possible for people to search for uses of this concept very cheaply, then it is likely that 
far less effective software, new apps, uh, new games will be written because the reduced transactions costs create an anti-comment. It's very cheap for me just to use a computer scraper, find all the instances that use the concept that I claim to have patented, and then have my attorney write cease and desist orders. Now, they might not work, but you're going to be tempted just to settle and pay me what is in effect just a corrupt licensing fee because the transactions cost are too low. Another example might be an anonymous survey. If I ask my students after a class, please fill out this form and tell me how you think I did as a teacher. Oh, and by the way, you'll need to submit it online and sign in first so that I know who you are. I'm not likely to get very good information, but if it can be submitted anonymously, raising the transactions cost of, in that case, triangulation of me being able to identify the source of the opinion, I'm more likely to get accurate information. Finally, the social credit score in China and some other authoritarian nations means that having increased knowledge of the activities or whereabouts of citizens that is reducing the transaction cost to the government of exercising social control is likely to make that a pretty bad place. An example that worries me is a digital fiat currency. So instead of having dollars, we might have what is in effect a digital currency. We'll use blockchain to record all the transactions and that would dramatically reduce the transactions cost of me paying you for things. However, it would also mean that the government would have a record of all the transactions that take place. It would be a complete loss of privacy. And many transactions that I would like to engage in might not take place because the transactions costs are too low. That is, the ability of the government to identify, or of corporations for that matter, to be able to identify what I have, the activities I'm engaging in, maybe uh, insurance information. If we reduce the transaction cost of knowledge of outsiders, we probably can make it easier for them to trust us, but the cost of that increased trust is oppression. Well, now let's look more specifically at the problem that MZ raised about transactions cost and dating and marriage. So in that case, the triangulation part is finding each other. Transfer, well, that's the fun part, if it is fun, being together. Not being able to be together is difficult, but it can be useful, I suppose. When I was in college, I tried to talk to a young woman at a party, and she quickly told me that she had an HTH, a hometown honey. They were committed, and so I say, well, all right, uh, she's not available. Later that night, I saw her on the back porch making out with my much better-looking fraternity brother. She seemed much less concerned about her HTH at that point, or maybe she just wasn't a fanatic about it. So the point is that transactions cost can be a way of improving your bargaining position. She told me she was not available, but to my better-looking friend, it turned out she was available. So like in the chicken game, if you can use transaction costs to eliminate an option, it may improve your bargaining position. Now, if you talk to any woman who's been married for at least five years and you ask her if some aspects of marriage are transactional, she'll laugh. <laughs> yes, yes, some aspects of marriage are transactional, but it can't be only transactional. It can't be openly transactional. I have a friend who's been married for a while. I was visiting the couple for dinner, and I happened to mention I often buy my wife flowers, often for no reason at all. My friend's spouse rolled her eyes and looked at my friend. You hear that? He buys her flowers for no reason. My friend started sputtering. But why would you do that? She knows that you're only doing it because it makes her happy. It seems so cynical. Once you know she likes flowers and she knows that you know that, it doesn't count anymore. It's like buying her a vacuum cleaner. 
Now, I happened to make eye contact with my friend's spouse at this moment, and she had this, do you see what I'm dealing with? Help me look on her face. So I responded to my friend, okay, I see your point, but think of it this way. I'm saying that I care enough to do this thing just because I know it makes you happy, even though you know that the reason I'm doing it is to make you happy. Think of it the other way around. Suppose you're in the grocery store anyway, and you made a conscious decision not to pay $8 for flowers, even though that would make your spouse happy. What does that say? Well, my friend's spouse was surprisingly vigorous in her agreement, nodding and then staring absolute daggers at my poor friend. Well, I never convinced him. But buying flowers is not like buying a vacuum. Perhaps the household needs a vacuum, but if your spouse wants flowers, even though you're going to throw them away in a week because they wilt, it's a costly way of saying, I was thinking of you. In other words, it's precisely the extra transaction cost involved in doing something otherwise irrational that makes this rational or at least valuable to your partner. Voluntarily incurring transaction cost is a costly signal, which from a game theoretic perspective is a commitment device. Well, but what if you're not married? And that really was the question that MZ had. What role do transactions costs play in the problem of getting married or not getting married? Russ Roberts and I talked about this when we discussed his book, Wild Problems, on EconTalk. The first problem is search costs, a matching problem. You need to find someone you want to spend time with, but that same person actually has to want to spend time with you. So it's a, it's a complex matching problem. Escort services solve this problem by charging money. So a person might not voluntarily want to spend time with you. He or she might be willing if you pay that person enough. Well, that's really not what we're talking about. We're talking about dating services. On a date, you're making each other better off if it's a good date. It's not an exchange exactly, but it's a cooperative activity or what economists call team production. Of course, the team production idea applies to physical romantic encounters where hopefully the two of you both enjoy the closeness and the contact. Maybe you want to have children together, and of course, it takes two of you, or at a minimum share a household together and the chores and responsibilities that come along with that. Well, there's a classic statement of this problem called the secretary problem. Some people call it the marriage problem, but I, I think it's not a very accurate way of thinking about that. But let's talk for a minute about the secretary problem. You're a top manager at a company. You need to hire the best staff assistant out of N candidates that are all qualified. So somebody's taken a first pass and weeded out the clearly uncompetitive application. N, the number of applicants, is pretty large, but it's finite. You could interview them one by one in random order. But the decision of making an offer or rejecting a particular applicant must be taken immediately after the interview. That is, if you don't hire them or ask them out on a date, if we're talking about a dating service, then they're not available and they're either angry because you passed them over or they've decided to do something else. So each of these is a one-off interview. The salary and benefits are very competitive. The job is attractive, so the applicant who's offered the position is likely to accept. Now, in this thought experiment, if you reach the nth candidate having not made an offer, then you offer the job to the nth candidate because you have to hire someone. What strategy do you use to maximize the chances to hire the best applicant? Well, it's interesting. It turns out that there is an optimal strategy. Interview R candidates chosen at random from the applicant pool N. Now, that R candidates is the training set. 
Identify and keep records of only the best. You don't care about the average. All you care about is the best in the training set of our candidates that you actually interview. So let's call that quality X. Quality of the best candidate in the training set is X sub R, or the reference reservation value. Begin interviewing the remaining candidates as soon as you encounter a candidate such that X sub I, that particular candidate, is better than X sub R, the reservation quality from the training set, then you make the offer. So note that the only decision variable to optimize here is the size of R, the training set, given the size of N, the applicant pool. Everything else is mechanical. So it turns out there's a surprisingly specific prediction about the optimal size of R. It's N divided by E, where E is Euler's number. And I described this in the links if you're more interested in the specifics. That turns out to be essentially 37% of the applicant pool. So all that argle-bargle that I said before can be restated in English. You have an applicant pool of some size. Interview 37% of the applicant pool. Remember who is the best applicant in that training set, and then hire the first person among the remaining 63% of applicants who is better. Now, that means that if the best person is in the first 37%, you're not going to encounter anyone in the remaining 63%, and you're going to end up hiring the nth person. But most of the time, obviously, the best person is not going to be in the original 37%. You've got basically a two-thirds chance that the best person will be in the remaining 63%. It turns out that this strategy, if you can actually judge quality, is going to be better than any other procedure that you could cheaply use. Let's think about this question in terms of dating and marriage. So let's get an example. If n is three, that is three people have expressed interest in you on the dating site, and they live nearby, so you actually could date them. Then you multiply 0.37 times 3, and that's approximately 1. It can't be 0. That is, the training set has to contain at least one person. And if you interview two people, you're just saying you're always going to try to marry the third person, which is dumb. So if there's only three applicants, you look at the first, maybe go on a date or consider that first person. And then you consider the other two. And if either one of them is better than the first person, you would try to marry that person. Now, you can see why having n only be three is a problem. It means that the size of the dating pool is not very great, but then that really is the question that MZ was asking. Let's consider instead that there were eight people who've expressed an interest in you. Then 0.37 times eight is equal to three, so you go out on dates with three people, and then you start dating the remaining five one by one. The first person in the five who is better than the best person in the three, you propose marriage. Now, on the other hand, if you live in New York, there may be 100 people or 500 people who have expressed an interest. So that would mean, if there's 100, that you would need to date 37 and then start looking for a mate in earnest. In fact, it might be really hard to judge quality. It may be hard to keep all these people straight. You're talking about what you're considering is, is this a person that I would be interested in? And after a first date, it may be hard to tell. Well, most of you by this time are laughing at the efforts of this poor schlub to do this rationally. And yes, I'm making air quotes. Because even though this is an optimal solution, the idea that you can judge quality or remember and compare quality for a date is pretty nonsensical. Anyone who actually tries this strategy is likely to be the superhero, lonely single forever man whose superpower is having dates leave him halfway through dinner. You step into a nearby phone booth and the phone never rings. Or if he's rich, he might get married, but then quickly change into lonely divorced man who has now given up half his wealth very quickly. So the point 
is that it might actually be true the transactions cost of living in a place with lots of options can be paralyzing because if you follow anything like the logic of the secretary problem, you would have to go on a lot of first dates before you could even begin to make a decision. Whereas if you live in a place where there's three possible candidates, you'll think, well, I'm going to get married. And getting married is actually something that's good for you. Being married for most people is a happier state than not being married. Of course, some of that depends on the person you end up with. But I'll link to the discussion, the conversation between Tyler Cowan and Russ Roberts, where Tyler, I think, makes a very plausible argument that you'll just be a better person if you're, if you're married. Garrison Keillor had a theory where he claimed that marriage was like a bank account, because sometimes you're going to draw down some of the credit you have with your spouse. You might think of this as a theory of the firm, Alchian and Demset's kind of approach with team production. I may not always contribute my full share to the marriage, sometimes maybe a little more, but sometimes I'm sitting in a lounge chair with food stains and crumbs on my shirt, snoring, smelling bad. And my spouse takes a look and thinks, you know, I wasted the $25 for the marriage contract. But there's transactions cost to get out of the marriage contract. And it means that over time, marriage may last in a way that having just one-off transactions would not. Now, on a baseball team, people have voluntarily specialized based on their interests. That is, somebody's a shortstop, somebody's an outfielder, somebody's a catcher. In a marriage... There are differences between people, but some of those are going to have to be negotiated and worked out. And if both people see themselves as contributing to the team, it's more likely to be successful. There is, though, a shirking problem. Each wants the other to remain physically attractive and romantically enthusiastic, but it's tempting for each person to cheat. What if it's possible to purchase the benefits of marriage on what we might call the spot market? That is, we don't actually have to have the long-term contract. We could just negotiate one-off transactions and get some of the benefits of marriage. There's a website called Ashley Madison. The motto on the website is, life is short, have an affair. And it is interesting that Ashley Madison is specifically designed for married people who would like to have side opportunity to diversify their romantic experiences. So what Ashley Madison does is make it less likely that you will get caught. One of the problems with trying to have an affair is that you're likely to get caught. It's weird to go to bars and people can see that you have a ring or they, they can see the place where you, you had a wedding ring on your hand. Ashley Madison is a way of contacting other people at very low transaction costs. Now, the reason that might be a problem is there's some institutions such as marital fidelity and reliability where we, we want people to be able to trust each other. By reducing the transactions cost of cheating, it might make marriage a more difficult institution to sustain. Whoa, that sound means it's time for Twedge. The joke this week came from a letter from JB. JB says, I like your recent note on the calculation debate and how, despite Mises and Hayek writing about the calculation debate, this problem with socialism keeps reappearing. And I'll, I'll put up a link to the piece on the calculation debate. JB goes on, I grew up on the other side of the Iron Curtain, and remember that the problem was well understood there. Perhaps it isn't surprising since we had to live daily with the consequences of ignoring the informational content of market-generated prices. Actually, there was even a Soviet-style joke about it. It goes like this. A party apparatchik is finally promoted into the Politburo, is given a briefing on the top-secret plan to bring socialism to the entire world. There he sees a master map, where every country is marked with little red flags. Except one. Switzerland. 
He says, why, why does the plan say that there will be no socialism in Switzerland? And the answer is, comrade, we will still need someone to generate prices. So the, the reason that that joke, which like all twedges is not terribly funny, the reason that's interesting is that it's like a mother for kombucha or for vinegar. You need some starting or seed process. The, the Soviets believed that they could use calculation, but having to search over the entire space, the very broad space of possible parameters to solve the allocation problem is just too computationally difficult. But if you had seed values, where you have different relative prices for commodities, then it would be much less computationally complex. Now, as you'll see, if you look at my article, uh, I claim that that's actually the wrong way to think about this and that transaction cost plays a bigger role than computation. But thanks for that joke. <laughs> Well, the letter this week says, this past week's episode made me wonder why businesses set prices below actual market values. Consider the new gaming system, PS5 and Xbox, or graphics cards for PCs. Businesses who manufacture these products have tight manufacturer-suggested retail prices, and they enforce them. This opens up the avenue for middlemen to sell via third-party websites, eBay, Amazon, often for a big profit. Wouldn't it be more efficient for the manufacturers to sell these products at higher prices and then invest extra returns to produce more units and eventually maybe bring prices down? I actually talked with a Sony rep once about this issue. He was adamant that charging higher prices would be reputation suicide for the business. This seems quite similar to the revulsion that many people have to price gouging in emergencies. Is this rational for Sony and others to do? Well, thanks for that letter. Um, it's a really interesting question. It does seem like Bruce Springsteen, Taylor Swift, a lot of acts that go on tour make a real effort to charge a price that's quite a bit below the market price. Why? Why would they do that? Well, answer to that question, next week's economics joke, and more next week. This is Tidy C.